Hello, and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. In this podcast series, I talk with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. I'm starting this year with a focus on college admissions, which would be helpful not only for parents of the seniors who are going through it right now, but also for parents of younger students who are thinking ahead. Last week, we heard from David Coleman, CEO of the College Board, the providers of college admissions resources and testing. Today, we're going to talk about the college admissions process with two people who know a lot about it. I'm so happy to welcome Timothy Fields and Shereem Herndon-Brown, authors of The Black Family's Guide to College Admissions, a conversation about education, parenting, and race. Tim is the Senior Associate Dean of Undergraduate Admissions at Emory University, and he's a graduate of Morehouse College. Shereem, who was an admissions officer at Georgetown University and a high school college counselor at a number of prestigious private schools, is the founder of Strategic Admissions, a college counseling consulting company. Shereem is a graduate of Wesleyan University. Both men are parents. Tim has nine-year-old twins, a boy and a girl, and Shereem has a 27-year-old daughter, an 18-year-old son, and 10-year-old twin girls. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Shereem and Tim. Thank you for having thank us. You, we're thank you. Thank you. We're excited to be here. <laughs> Great. I've been focused on helping parents and students navigate their college admissions journey for years, and I'm so excited to learn about your efforts both independently and now collectively to shed light on this process. I can't wait to talk with you all about it, so let's get started. First, I always like to start with hearing a little bit about how my guests grew up and, and how they got to their focus. So tell me, I'll start with you, Tim. Where did you grow up? Did your parents have educational expectations of you? And if so, how did they convey them to you? Yes. So I grew up in Arlington, Texas, uh, which was a suburb uh, directly between Dallas and Fort Worth. I'm a fourth generation college student. Uh, my mother uh, was a the first admission director at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. My father was uh, got his doctorate in higher education, and he went to UMass Amherst as well, you know, and then was a vice president in a uh, community college system in Texas. So education was always a part of my upbringing. At growing up in Arlington, Texas, a suburb, predominantly white suburb. And so, you know, when it came time for me to look to college, I uh, went on a uh, college road trip through the uh, South, uh, went to a lot of HBCUs. And when I arrived at Morehouse, I ran cross country and track and I got to meet the track team and just that camaraderie uh, that I, you know, met when meeting those gentlemen uh, was something that drew me to want to go to Morehouse. And so, you know, college was something that was always in the forefront for as long as I remember looking back at, you know, pictures. Uh, my mom went to University of Michigan, had Michigan sweaters on. Uh, so, you know, it was just something that was at the forefront. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's great. How about you, Shereen? I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I'm a first-generation college student. Both my parents were blue-collar workers. My mom was a nurse for a long time, and my dad worked for UPS, United Parcel Service. But as an only child, made the decision very intentionally to send me to private school as early as first grade. So I attended Brooklyn Friends School, which is a Quaker school in Brooklyn, New York, from grades one through nine. And after that, I attended Westtown School, also a Quaker school, but a boarding school in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Their exposure to college really just was the, I guess, aspirations of any non-college-going couple. College will make your life better. And they poured all they had into me in terms of resources and love and, and nurturing me. I had gone away to summer camp as well. Became very familiar with liberal arts colleges in the Northeast. And 
applied to Wesleyan University as an early decision candidate, primarily because I became to know Wesleyan as the most diverse school in New England, arguably, but definitely amongst the ilk of, you know, some little Ivies or, you know, the little three Amherst Williams um, and Wesleyan. And had a great experience. I went abroad, studied in Kenya for a semester, pledged a historically black fraternity, Omega Psi Phi Fraternity Incorporated. And then after graduation, actually worked at Brooklyn Friends and West Town, respectively, as a teacher, first as an, as an English teacher. I actually have a master's of English from Middlebury College as well, and then uh, became a college counselor. So my educational experience is very different from Tim's. My parents kind of assume that independent school culture would get me to college and get me successfully through it, and it did. So that's kind of, I come to this place as an independent school student, formerly, independent school faculty, and eventually an administrator as being a college counselor and then director of admissions, and then also now as an independent school parent. So his public school experience, my independent school experience really came together to form a, a book that we hope will serve a lot of different constituencies. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and I just have to say, listening to you guys, in my family, we have a similar circumstance with you guys in that I'm third generation college and graduate school. The question was not what college, but what profession. And my husband is first generation who, like you, Shereem, went to boarding school. We both started out in public school and he left public school to go to Andover for high school and says to anyone who will listen how much that changed the trajectory of his life. His parents, like your parents, Shereem, knew about the value of education, but hadn't had the opportunity to experience it for themselves, but poured all they could into him to get him on the right track. So in, in my own household, I have that same, that duality, which I think is actually really helpful when it comes to thinking about how parents should approach the college admissions process, parents and students. In this podcast, I'm really focused on the parents. I mean, we it's our children who have to go to college, but it's the parents who really have to, as you guys note in your book, shepherd them along the way. And so that's a good segue to my first question for you guys, which you address in your book, which is how early should this college conversation start? I mean, you guys have different perspectives on it, but both of you think it should start earlier than junior year in high school. No, I think we, we both agree that as educators, we hope that Black families in particular will understand that the process begins with awareness. And as Tim said, as long as he can remember, he's been around college campuses, has seen Michigan sweatshirts because of his mom. He you know, remembers his time where his parents were, were, if not graduate students, had spoke with their graduate student experience. So he was aware. So that, that awareness can begin as early as kindergarten or, or you know, third grade. I think the actual exposure to college happens probably around middle school, you know, 10, 12 years old, when you start maybe visiting a homecoming or a a reunion at a college with your child so that they can see what all this, you know, hubbub is all about. So the process, I can argue, probably begins as early as seventh and eighth grade, seventh or eighth grade, I should say, because of the sequencing of courses that you may have to take in high school, particularly in math or science or foreign language. And we want to make sure that Black families are not coming to this process feeling that they don't have good information or are are behind the eight ball. You know, so many times and so many families we've run, we've come across Black, White, Green, and Yellow feel like it begins at the end of junior year or spring of junior year. And you're like, yes, it, that's the application part, sure. But the stuff leading up to it, the courses, the standardized testing, extracurricular activities, the understanding how they're different in terms of how much they cost, where they're located, what possible majors they may have or what careers they may lead to, 
that stuff can and should happen much earlier so that people are making informed decisions and not just doing it based upon a ranking or a name brand or a sweatshirt for that matter. What I, what I would say is that, you know, uh, it's kind of, you know, my perspective is really grounded on me spending the last 20 years in college admission and, you know, really, you know, looking at that ninth, 10th, 11th and 12th grade transcript and that, you know, the process, you know, really begins in the ninth grade. So because, you know, some schools look at all four years, some schools, you know, only look at 10th grade years. But, you know, your high school, the transcript is the most important part of the college application process. So that's when it begins. That's when people should be thinking about what courses are they taking? How well are they doing in those courses? And so we want to make sure that students know that because, you know, if you automatically think, oh, junior year, I need to turn my grades on those first two years, those grades are going to influence your overall uh, GPA. And so, you know, I would say it definitely starts in the ninth grade. But to Shereen's point, if you are looking at the most selective colleges in the country, the sequencing and the courses that you take, the foundation is laid in what, what courses you take sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. And so we will continue to say there are 4,000 college universities throughout the country, but the reality is about 200 of them get the attention of most people. And so if you are looking at those 200 schools that have admit rates under 25%, then yes, the process is going to start in the seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. Well, you know, you've, you both have said a lot there that I want to unpack. First, the last thing you said, Tim, I really want to reiterate. In this college uh, journey, it's so tempting for parents, whether they have been to college or whether they have not, to really hone in on the extremely selective schools and the schools that everyone knows, the brand name schools. And it's no secret that these schools are getting tougher and tougher to get into. Their, their admit rates are shrinking. It's really important as we begin this process to understand that there are a lot of schools. And, and the good news is because the schools that have been perceived to be at the top have become so selective, there are a lot of great students, great teachers in a lot of schools. <laughs> so it is, it is really important that we as parents don't get invested as this process begins in some particular school that, that the child has to consider or has to go to. It sounds like what you are saying, both of you are saying, is that the the focused process, meaning when you start thinking about how much grades matter and what courses you're taking, may not start until so the end of middle school, the beginning of high school, but that the general sort of exposure and interest in college as a thing can and should start a lot earlier. And one of the things I want to ask the both of you, one of the things I've been a little soapbox about is the importance of parents seeing themselves in partnership with the schools for the entirety of their child's education so that particularly when it comes to things like college admissions, parents who've either been a long time since you went through it or you never went through it, they tend to like put that in the school's bucket and not feel like they have a lot of responsibility until it's time to seriously think about it. Whereas it sounds like from what you're saying and from what I've experienced as well, the sooner a parent takes a position that, sure, I want my child to go to college, let's figure out how what I can do versus what the school is doing, the, the better off they are. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that our families, you know, really need to know is that they have to be invested in the education that, you know, you just can't take your student to a school, drop them off, expect for them to, you know, go to class for that six, seven hours, come home, do homework, and for them to get all that they need. That You know, there's a, a, a additional support needed. There's additional extracurricular activities needed. There's additional just life lessons that you have to be engaged in. 
And so, yes, uh, you know, definitely it's more than just going to school and getting that education during the day. But, you know, as Shireen talked about, it's a community. And, you know, it's that community to support pouring into that child to make sure that they get everything they need to do, especially um, when, you know, thinking about everything that college is going to require. And I could also add to that, that for better or for worse, and I'll talk about independent schools in particular, parents too often see it as a customer service or where I'm paying you X amount of dollars, thus you should be taking care of this. And while I, as an independent school tuition paying parent, understand that, <laughs> I also understand that I have to be present and accounted for and engaged in order to see my dollar at work, but also be invested with my time emotionally, particularly with my children's education. So yes, parents, it's a shared responsibility across the board. We understand that you know in this capitalistic society, that if I pay you for something, you should be able to do something for me. It doesn't quite work that way with the college admissions process. And we really need to, we're trying to help families understand that. Tim has been adamant with me um, as we work through this book that we have to put some of the blame, quote unquote, on the parents. Parents are not as engaged as they sometimes should be. Whereas part of my own business, strategic admissions advice, feeds off of parents not feeling fulfilled by their school college counseling offices. If they if they feel like they're not doing enough, then they come seek other advice. Uh, but I agree with Tim mm-hmm. as an educator, not necessarily as an entrepreneur, but as an educator, that parents <laughs> and school counselors need to have a partnership in order for the child to, to, to really maximize their potential. You know, and you talked about it as an investment. I, I too, having had children in both public and private school, I have seen and heard on the private school side so many parents frustrated with the high costs of education, particularly here in New York City, and rationalizing that with all of that money, surely the school should be doing more fill in the blank, but certainly when it comes to college admissions. But, you know, you mentioned it is an investment. And who among us would just put the amount of money we're giving to these schools in an investment and then not examine it, focus on it, see if it's still the right one, see if it's if it's earning as it should, you know, monitor it. It is an investment and we should treat it like we treat other financial investments. I mean, we there's nothing you just sort of lock away, you pay blindly and then sort of at the end of 12 years <laughs> expect this return. So that that's a, another way to look at it for the people who are still fussing about what they're not getting. And to your point about, I, I think you can live with both concepts, Shireen, because Even the most engaged and focused parent for the entirety of their child's school time, be it in public school or private school, when you get to the college application process, many, many parents really appreciate getting a third party who is not the school and is not them (laughs) involved in the process. Because for those listening who haven't gone through this, it's a really important, exciting, but challenging oftentimes for parents and their children because suddenly there's the familial relationship sort of, is, there's an added burden of something being on the line. I mean, it's sort of a big test. I wouldn't advise looking at that way, but it's hard not to when you're applying for something, you want to get in, there's a lot riding on it. So so it's really helpful to have third parties. And and for those listening who can't afford an an independent counselor, truly, whomever you can talk to, to get in the process. So it's not just you and your children. It makes for, I I think it makes for a healthier journey. And uh, it it, it just makes the process a little bit easier. But um, yeah, can I just say something mm -hmm. very quickly before we transition? You were saying how, you know, somebody would just say, 
why would you just put an investment, you know, on the shelf and not, you know, kind of give of your time? I think one of the things that, you know, I found in my time at Emory and as we were writing this book is there are a lot of parents, particularly black parents that feel, oh, if I just send my student to this independent or this private school and they just take the bare minimum, they don't challenge themselves in the curriculum. They just have a degree from here and apply to colleges from this school that that's going to get them somewhere in the process. And I don't think that's true. And that's something that I really think that we definitely need to let our families know that it's not enough to go to these schools that have these good reputations, but you have to really take advantage of the opportunities that come with being at such world resourced institutions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And into your point about parental involvement, as a parent, you need to be in that school making sure you know what these opportunities are <laughs> for your children and being a part of the parent community in the school. I always talk to parents at private schools about it's your school, it's your kid's school. One of the differences between public school and private school is that the family goes to private school, meaning that people are all interviewed when they're little. I mean, it's it really, the family's accepted. And so if the family's going to be accepted, the family needs to be in there, making sure they know what's going on and, and very much a part of that community. I know that for children of color, black children in particular, at these predominantly white private schools, high schools, there's this feeling of not belonging. The numbers are, there's not a lot of diversity. There's a feeling of not belonging. But with respect to the parent body, all that you can do to help your child feel more of a part of the community is for you to be a part of the community as well. I mean, it, it's really important for parents to hear that. And and while I hear you on the, the, I know responsibility is probably better word than blame, but I really do think parents need to, however old their child is at this point, start thinking about the responsibilities of parenting, including the responsibilities for making sure they are focused in school and make it through and, and make that college process as, I was about to say, as stress-free as possible. It's not a stress-free thing. It's never a stress-free thing, but to reduce the amount of stress. But that actually leads me to something that I want to ask about, because the flip side of, you know, you guys in your books talk about, I'm going to quote, it's critical that black parents understand that almost everything their child does from middle school through high school influences their college options. Everything matters. I get that. But it's a long way from, call it, seventh grade to senior year in high school. And most children are going to have ups and downs along that way. I mean, but they're not going to excel in every single thing. So how do you balance, from a parental perspective, understanding that things matter? So if your eighth grader says, I'm going to play video games instead of taking this test seriously because this test doesn't matter, you know enough to say, this test matters. <laughs> don't, don't, you know enough not to give your kids passes thinking that they'll make it up in high school. But I want to guard against the flip side of that, which is you are just hovering over your children from the seventh grade, worrying about the outcome of every test and feeling as if it's a make or break situation in seventh grade for something that doesn't happen until they get to 12th grade. Shereem? So yes, that's a, it's a great question. And I want to say as a parent, the million dollar question, right? How do you kind of balance the who your child is and what they're into versus you preparing them for what you believe their future should entail? And, you know, I've struggled with that. And I think Tim, again, I, I give him all the credit for this, reinforces to me that there are 4,000 colleges and universities across the country. And one of the great parts about our book is that we talk about predominantly white institutions, PWIs, for those who don't know, and historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs, and we show that there are black people, college graduates, who have success stories from different educational paths. 
one educational path doesn't equal success. You don't have to go to Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Howard, Spelman, or Morehouse to be successful. I think Oprah Winfrey's pretty darn successful and she went to Tennessee State. So all that said, I, again, I'll, I'll take it a little personal as a, as a father, had to step back and understand who my kid is or who he's becoming and not let my opinions professionally, personally invade his space, particularly parents who are navigating this through the pandemic. And we have no idea how this affected our kids. We have no idea about their social skills because they had to talk on Zoom. And if we continue to try to fit a square peg into a round hole, we're going to get pushed back as parents. Teenagers in those early 20 years are tough. So my advice is to take, not let your kids, you know, zone out on video games for 10 hours a day. But if you as a parent um, reimagine success, as Tim likes to say, and not let it be about certain schools and help them to see that, okay, you got to do something in your wheelhouse to hopefully have the future that I believe you want for yourself, 18 to 22 years old, I'll work with you. Instead of letting it be like, if you don't do this, Johnny, if you don't get an A on this test, you're going to be a failure. We all, myself included, have to work more on that. Yeah, the only thing I would say is, you know, speaking, you know, from seventh, eighth, ninth grade is that students should engage in something that it's not just something that you can turn on in 11th grade. Like you just can't 11th grade say, oh, I want to be involved in all these organizations that, you know, there needs to be some track record of consistency. You know, students have to both trial and error. What do I like? What I don't like? You know, obviously we understand that. But I think, you know, there are some instances where students and, and parents really don't engage in the process until 11th grade. And they all of a sudden they say, oh, I need to do community service. Oh, I need to do this. And they want to put together what they think is the ideal list that a college is looking for. When in fact, a college is always looking for is what are you interested in? What have you consistently done? And I think, you know, those uh, things, you know, start with kind of the habits and things that you put together in middle school. And so it's just not a matter of you have to do everything and plan everything. Uh, but there should be some level of engagement and, in, in, you know, thought that's just part of high school that, you know, all students are going to go through. Mm -hmm. So, Tim, that was really helpful. And I hope parents appreciate that this is the perspective of someone who actually reads students' applications and determines whether they should be admitted to a college. And he's just said that showing interest in having consistent engagement needs to start earlier than junior year. So for all of you who think that it's too soon for your seventh or eighth grader to spend part of his or her summer doing something volunteer or, or pursuing something that they're passionate about. Those things are important because it takes a while to develop a passion. You don't just, you can't just in one, even in one summer, sort of know that you love something and really want to do it well enough so that you can demonstrate, you can, you can make an impact on whatever it is. You got to give yourself some time. Your kid has to have some time. So I, I've, I've found this, so many of my friends over the course of when I, when my children were younger, really understandably want to let their kids play over the summer for as much as possible. And there's something to that plays really important. They need to be able to decompress. I don't suggest locking your kid into programs for their own sake, but I do think some happy medium between letting them have time to sort of breathe and be, but also nudging them towards something that they're interested in. Because on the, when you don't do that, they get to the 11th grade, to Tim's point, and they, they don't really have any interests. And then they have to kind of quickly glom onto something. And it sounds like admissions officials can see through that. So it's not even, it's not even worth it. It, it, 
It is. And, and and just, you know, one more thing, because, you know, what I found is people sometimes take it very literally uh, what we were just discussing. You know, you don't also have, don't have to be well-rounded. If there is one particular thing that you enjoy, that you're passionate about, that's fine, too. And so if you like dance, if mm-hmm. you like music, if you want to hone in on, you know, creating your own business on eBay or whatever it is, that's fine, too. Like you don't have to have be part of 20 different clubs or organizations to stand out, you know. But if you like one particular thing, that's what you're good at. That is fine, too. So we just want to make sure that, you know, parents understand mm-hmm. there's a balance. Like you don't have to put your kids in everything if they're not interested. I remember one time a mother was like, I, I worry my daughter's not going to be competitive. She's only done one thing. And I said, what did you, what does she do? She's like, she's danced since she was two years old. Dancing's from two to 18 consistently. The hours that she put into that says a lot. And so just want to make sure the parents know that as well before they just go saying, oh, my child needs to be in everything. That's not the case either. Yeah, that that's really helpful. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to the show. You know, in continuing this conversation about the parent's delicate balance between trying to make sure their child's on the right track and not trying to like build the track for them. I want to bring in uh, another part of a conversation that you guys address in your book that complicates it from a parenting from a parenting perspective even further, and that is the case for or against liberal arts. And it is, it's a, such an interesting section of the book, and I, I've been thinking a lot about it. I'm a product of liberal arts education, as are the two of you. But there is an argument made specifically by Shireen, but I'm sure in conjunction with, with Tim as well, that now the case for liberal arts isn't as strong as it may have once been. And a stronger case can be made for helping your children focus on uh, I'll call them professional degrees or degrees which basically can get you closer to a job when you get out of college. So, Shireem, is that an accurate kind of depiction of the case that you make? <laughs> sure. I mean, it's a snapshot. It's a snapshot, and I'm happy to delve in deeper because, again, it is arguably the most controversial, uh, provocative chapter in the book that I stand firmly on, but not, you know, without understanding different people's point of views. Like you said, I went to dare I say, diversity university, known for being a a bastion (laughs) of liberal arts education, Wesleyan University. So I appreciate my liberal arts background. I don't want people to think that I think that I should have been a a, a chemist or an engineer. What I have found, though, this is primarily working with students for a long time, but also my friends, my peers, is that students who, particularly Black students who are not coming from wealth, who are not doing have the access to the same kind of nepotism for professional opportunities as some white students may have, leave college with liberal arts degrees, and then ask themselves, what am I trained to do? Right? I think critically, I'm well adjusted socially, but what can I feasibly do? Can I, you know, run a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet really well and work in business and finance and learn skills along the way? Can I intern for Google if I was a sociology major? That is the predicament that I have found many of my peers and students fall into, that I am challenging Black families to not be, as we said earlier, passengers in their college, in their kids' college admissions process, and make sure that they're engaging their kids with their strengths and their interests with the eye on a professional opportunity, particularly as it pertains to wealth building. If you're going to send your kids to school so that they can be smarter and think critically, 
then great. Then this, this is pertains to you. But I don't know a lot of black people, personally, being a first generation kid, whose parents didn't expect that college would be helping them to level up in life, particularly financially. And I have peers who are mid 40s, almost 50, who are still asking themselves, why am I still paying back all these student loans? Am I happy in my profession? And question, I should have went corporate business. I should have done engineering STEM. I should have done something computer science. Now, does that mean that liberal arts degrees are worthless? Not at all. I like the way I think critically as it helps me in my profession. But I, at times, younger in my life, didn't like my bank account. And when I would see my friends getting bonuses working in business, that was frustrating. So I want Black families to be very intentional about helping their students identify strengths and interests, choosing majors, not, as Tim says, take their hands off the steering wheel once a kid gets into independent school or college and assume that equals financial success. No. You need to be intentional about choosing majors. You need to be very intentional about going into a, a job space in which you're qualified for and can get hired to and not be pummeled by a recession. So it is controversial. I have plenty of contradictions or, you know, can say contrary things to what I wrote, but I do want Black people to go into college, expensive college opportunities with the aim of having return on the investment that isn't just being able to read a book critically and annotate. Okay. I hear you. Okay. Tim, what do you say? <laughs> uh, you know, so what I will say, this was a uh, sticking point in the book. This was the last chapter that was submitted because we fought back and forth about it. Not that, you know, I agreed with the position that he took, uh, but, you know, it was just one of those type of things. There truly is a value in liberal arts that, you know, as we think about the job market and the and then the jobs that are being created, they are going to require, you know, students to critically think in, in many different ways to be able to write um, and to, you know, have communication skills and a lot of the things that are at the foundation of a liberal arts education. So, you know, there there's that argument and then, you know, just kind of the way technology is being introduced, these, you know, traditional engineer and lawyer uh, type of, you know, STEM uh, business type of positions, it may be different. And so I went back and forth. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we, you know, the, one of the last things I said is like, I'm going to ride with you. Whatever you write, we're going to we're going to stand together on it. And uh, let's say it was watered down. So, you know, it, it was it was it was on a 10 <laughs> on the first draft and what you all read is about a six. So we, we cleaned it up, came to some compromise. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, there, there's <laughs> so, so, so well, definitely. Well, you know, I, I got to jump back in. I got to jump back in because this was my baby. <laughs> this was my soapbox. And I want to be very clear. The people that I know who went to liberal arts schools in the mid nineties and to, you know, of that ilk in new England who are doing well professionally, in my opinion, and I think in their own opinion, probably went to graduate school after their, their, their four year experience, MBAs, JD, so on and so forth. So there is that population that one of a classmates works at Google is an executive at Google has a Wharton MBA. Uh, one of my best friends is a, is a, uh, CFO for Endeavor out in LA who went to Wesley with me, but has a JD from, from UCLA. The people who have BAs and nothing else, I think sometimes find themselves stuck in the, 
what am I supposed to be doing? Unless they gain tremendous experience where some of their white counterparts also with a BA, bless his heart, Jed, the owner, the president of the Cubs is a Wesleyan grad with me, has a BA. I don't know a black person with a BA that doesn't have a graduate degree that's the president of a professional sports organization. So I just want to be clear that a BA for a white person and a BA from a black person from a liberal arts institution sometimes does not parallel itself in the trajectory of their their career aspirations. Okay, I'm going to hop in here because I will just say to what you just said, I do know black professionals who have taken their BAs and and had great success. I know one who runs an uh, an investment, a financial management company. I mean, I could list lots of senior consultants. There are people that do that. But as I think about it, I was intrigued by this because, of course, I'm liberal arts. All my kids are, are liberal arts. But Two of my three children have already gone to graduate school. My husband and I both went to graduate school. So to your point, you, you, you can look at graduate school as a place where you get that intense training in a particular area. But I, I hear you. I mean, you, we all have so many friends who didn't know exactly what they wanted to do, even when they graduated. But I mean, because the other problem with the perspective is that, okay, we've already talked about the difficulties of having your children take certain courses or take a college-bound curriculum that you know would be good for them, but they may not want to do. So if you layer on top of that, having them decide in seventh or eighth grade that they really want to be a fill-in-the-blank. I mean, I know personally my father wanted me to be a doctor. I mean, that you can't will that on a child. <laughs> I mean, you can't, even if they do well in math and science, you can't will them to want to pursue that course of study. So it makes it even more complicated from a parenting perspective to take the position that to try to steer your child away from liberal arts if that's what they want to do. And to be fair, Shereem, you do say in your argument that if that's what they want to do, you wouldn't encourage trying to make them pivot. But what I wonder is, you know, you mentioned the difference between the children with BAs, and I would even take this back to the point at which children start to look for jobs in high school. I mean, when they start to sort of figure out what they want to do. It's helping your children understand that they need to have some sort of awareness of what things they're interested in can yield in terms of jobs. I mean, they perhaps don't have to make the decision when they're in high school or even in early college, but they should at least know. I mean, I had friends that took different majors because they sounded interesting, but not with a real eye towards what you could do with it. There was sort of a kind of a blind following. And, and the reason what I say about this is it's the networking at an early age, which I think makes a difference. And you don't just have to be a kid of privilege or wealth to be able to network. There are lots of networking opportunities. There are lots of programs that introduce people who don't have networks into businesses from a relatively young age. Sometimes they don't start into college, but sometimes they're even in high school. If your child can take advantage of an opportunity to be in a world that they think they might want to be a part of, you can start networking in an early age. I've got to tell you, at this age and stage of my life, I can't tell you the number of senior executives who are raving about some very young kid who is eager, energetic, interested, uh, curious, and there's really an effort made with, with all of this DEI conversation in the world. People are very happy to see young people who really want to know things. Who But the point is, 
children have to have that curiosity. And then we as parents have to encourage them to look at, you say you want to major in geology, like, okay, what is that? What are the options there? Think about them now, not to say, think about them to exclude them, but just what are they? And what could you do maybe over a summer where people who have had your major have done that? I mean, bottom line is I think from a parental perspective, I think if you can encourage your kids to try to learn as much as they can about where their majors could go, I mean, it does require ninth, 10th graders to think about majors or even even 11th to 12th graders think about majors in a way that they don't now. But I think in terms of the differing levels of pressure, I think the pressure to just encourage your child to sort of do research and talk to people is much less pressure than to choose a major based on what the job market is like. Because to Tim's point, that job market can flip in a <laughs> in a cycle. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm not sure I'm not sure that that'll work. But um in any event, I think it's a really interesting argument, particularly now, Shereen, okay, you've got kids. Do you have a success story there? Did you talk your older children into doing something? And are they now at the top of their game? Uh, my older daughter is my wife's cousin who came to live with when she was 17. So she, I did not sire her, but she is my daughter and I claim her on my taxes and I love her very much. For many years, she fought uh, when I told her that she should be a teacher. She fought me on it. And then for the next five years, she was in and out of different jobs and, you know, was frustrated. Then she finally came around and became a teacher. Now she has, she gets out at four o'clock, has all of her evenings and weekends to herself, has to check on the first and the 15th and has, you know, a good part of her summer off. She has said, thank you. I should have listened to you earlier. My son, who's just beginning his college journey and, you know, my, my favorite son, because he's my only, um, we're still working on that. We, we, I, I, don't, I can't call it a success story. I'll call it a work in progress of helping him to identify not just what he's passionate about, because I really don't like that word passion, but what are you good at that you could do in your sleep? I think we'll get there. So mm-hmm. talk to me in 18 months or two years from now about that success story. Again, I just got to make a plug for the people that figured it out when they were 22 and they're right. really successful now. Right. So they, they it's, not, it it's not it's not easy. It's very unfun. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no it is. But I guess it's the it's the helping your kids build the figure it out skills, <laughs> whatever they may be. The focus on trying to figure it out, and the importance of figuring it out. Okay, I I just have to touch on this one last thing and this could have its own episode and I'm sure it should. <laughs> And this is the really interesting and fulsome discussion that you guys have in your book about HBCUs and PWIs, predominantly white institutions. And I just have have a question for each of you, which kind of sort of tries to pull it all together. Tim, my first question for you as a Morehouse grad, a very proud Morehouse grad, and I've yet to meet a Morehouse grad who was not a very proud Morehouse grad. So you work for a PWI, you work for Emory. How do you talk with black students about the value of attending an Emory? I mean, because I know you don't just talk about your school over an HBCU. Yes, I think one of the most common questions that I've, you know, um, received in my time at Emory, particularly around the April yield time, is there are, you know, uh, black students who are admitted to Emory and they are also admitted to HBCUs and 
you know, in, you know, meetings and conversations, the parents would say, you know, what is your perspective? What, you know, which one do you think will benefit my child? And so if you would ask me, you know, 10 years ago, I would have a very strong position that, you know, every black student have had the opportunity to go to HBCU. I think, you know, with working at Emory um, and, you know, really kind of being able to step back from, you know, my pride of going to historical black college universities, I've really been able to recognize that different people want different things out of their college experience. And so as I'm talking with families, you know, it really comes down to what are you looking for? If, you know, to our previous conversation, if you are solely, I want to get a, you know, education that's going to position me to go into corporate America, to go into medical school, uh, to go to these places, you know, Emory and schools like that just have more resources. I would never say that Emory is better than Morehouse, but what I will say is there's a hospital on Emory's campus. There is a uh, a graduate school of business on Emory's campus. It's one of the top in the country. So I would say if that is what you are looking for, then, you know, you may want to go to an institution that are going to have those readily made resources right there for you built in that you have. However, if you, similar to myself, are saying, you know what? I've been in predominantly white environments all of my life. I would like to know what it feels like to be in a predominantly black environment, to look and see professors that look like me, to look around and on a daily basis to be an environment that, you know, really pours into me that, you know, the institution doesn't have to make all kinds of DEI efforts and do all these type of things because it's actually built into the fabric of the institution, then I would say at HBCU. But you as a family, knowing your student, knowing what what they need, not only academically, but what what they may need culturally, you all have to have uh, that conversation and be honest and also just say one is not better than the other. Like we said, if we want to celebrate President Barack Obama, First Lady Michelle Obama and them going to Ivy League institutions, then you have to celebrate Oprah Winfrey, who went to Tennessee State. You have to celebrate Vice President Kamala Harris, who went to Howard University. Um, You know, you have to celebrate Michael Strahan, who, you know, wakes us up every morning on Good Morning America, who went to Texas Southern. So you can't say that, oh, one institution is going to better prepare me. But it's like, what is the institution going to give you for that next chapter? Mm -hmm. Got it. Great, great. And Jareem, do you regret not going to an HBCU? And do you want your children, would you advise your children to go to one? Uh oh, you're gonna start oh, something, Carol. Carol. You're gonna start something. I've yet to meet a person that went to a historically black college or university who says, I wish I would have went to a PWI. I've met plenty of people who've gone to PWIs who said I should have gone to an HBCU. Do I regret not going to an HBCU? No. I, at the time in my life, if I think back to when I was 17 years old applying to college, I'm happy with the college choice that I made, given what information that I knew about colleges. So there was minimal exposure to Howard and Morehouse. There was that I, I had friends who were going, so I knew that they existed. But my mindset, my comfort zone was going to a PWI, and I didn't want to really step out of that. And I was okay with that. Now, Tim teases me, for better or for worse, all the time about the only reason why he talks to me as a PWI person, but he trusted me to write this book with him is because my wife went to Howard and I pledged a black friend. So that gave me enough, <laughs> you know, street cred with him that we could continue to, to, to build a relationship. Um, it, it helped you. You could hold on to your black card. Correct, okay. Correct. <laughs> he, he was like, okay, you're not, you're not passing. So 
All that said, I do think black families in 2022, 2023, 2024 and beyond, you are being negligent to your child's educational experience if you're not considering both. Tim and I don't stand for you should be sending one or the other. But because of the potential of both, I think you're being unfair if you don't at least have family discussion. So we were very intentional about calling this book The Black Family's Guide to College Admissions because it's a family decision. It's a family conversation. It's about education. It's about parenting and race. I recently met a woman who went to uh, Texas Southern and Hampton, and her husband went to Yale. She said her husband's Yale degree gets him in the door, but her HBCU family loves her more than his Yale family ever loved him. That was powerful. Now, I don't know them that, that well, but that stuck with me. So my oldest daughter went to Xavier. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, HBCU in, in New Orleans. My son is currently at the University of Memphis, where that which is a PWI, although it's 65% black city. So he's around a lot of black people. And my two younger <laughs> ones, you know, I call them the twin individuals. One of them tells me now I'm going to Spelman. The other one tells me now I'm going to the University of Miami. So, you know, I, I believe the two of them, one will go to an HBC, the other one will go to PWI, but I'm not asking them to do either. I just want them to grow up to be conscientious world citizens who do more good than bad in this world. So it, it's a tricky question. I know a lot of black families have the conundrum and it's geographic. If, you, if, if I think about my New York population, not enough New York families, in my opinion, consider HBCUs if they're not named Morehouse, Howard, or Spelman. But if you talk to families from the South, they are actively investigating HBCUs because that's part of the culture. So it, it, it's a loaded question that, that I think we could have a, like you said, a four hour conversation about, but I'm always happy to have it. But, but it's really great that you guys raise this in your book because it, it is, it's an important one, particularly now for families to have. So listen, guys, again, it, it is, we could continue this conversation. There's so many other topics in, in your really, really interesting book. And parents, it is called The Black Family's Guide to College Admissions, A Conversation About Education, Parenting, and Race. And I, it is impressively compiled by two people with very different, as you've heard in this conversation, different perspectives, but also different vantage points. And each of their vantage points is going to be really helpful to parents as they help their children on this journey. So I'm going to wrap it up here. But first, first of all, I want to say thank you, guys. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, And I'm sure the parents appreciate your experience and we'll run and buy the book. (laughs) But there's one quick thing I want to do before we go. You're both parents and I want you to play the GCP Lightning round. Um, and I'll give you four quick questions that I'll divide amongst you. So are you ready? Go. Yeah, let's get to it. Okay, great. I want each of you to give me a favorite poem, just the name of it. You don't have to recite it. A favorite poem or, or a favorite saying. Just things that something that you say a lot or that you grew up hearing somebody say a lot. Uh, just a Minute by Benjamin Mays. It's a poem. Okay. <laughs> And it's a Morehouse-related poem. <laughs> there you go. There you go. We'll be consistent. Courage. Yes. I'll say courage. Courage or see it through, but I'll go with courage, which is a poem that I learned online. Okay. Great. And each of you give me one favorite children's book, and it could be one you grew up listening to or reading or one that you, your kids have loved. I'm always going to go Shel Silverstein like that. 
every day. Light every in the day, attic, yeah. <laughs> every day, all day, me and Shel Silverstein get along real well. All my kids have read his books because it still makes them laugh. I like Charlotte's Web. <laughs> yeah, no, that is a classic, a real classic. I'll just give you both one more question. I want each of you to answer. Give me a moment, just any moment where you knew you nailed it as a dad, where you just knew it, you was like a good dad moment. Good dad moment. Uh, so, you know, my son started playing the violin and he came home and, you know, he said, I named my violin. I said, what did you name your violin? He said, I'm going to name my violin Prince. And I let name my bow the revolution. And I had a proud dad moment because I didn't know he knew we were listening to Prince around the house. And, you know, I, I, I say, it, you know, we, we raise our kids in these environments. We don't know how much blackness is rubbing off on him. But the mere fact that he knew Prince and the revolution. And then I said, well, how many songs, you know, and he rattled off five songs by Prince. I said, I'm, I'm doing a little something right. I'm doing a little something right. Absolutely. I love that he's got Prince and the Revolution making music. <laughs> I don't know if I could top that one. Um, <laughs> I, I will say this. I, too, it'll come from my son because he and I are very close and very the same person 30 years apart. He recently went to go pick up his new girlfriend, a current Spelman student, proud dad moment. And <laughs> I, I, I said, uh, or make sure you get out the car, open her door, and put her carry her bags to the car. And he says, of course, you taught me well. And that made me drop a tear. That was like, maybe, just maybe, I helped him to see that chivalry. <laughs> oh, that is a great, those are both really great stories. Thank you, guys. <laughs> and thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, we we, we you appreciate your you. time, Carol. We appreciate your platform. <laughs> thank you for sharing so much. And again, we're happy to Come on any other time to continue to talk about the book and all things Black Parent. I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation and that you'll come back for more. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends. For more parenting info and advice, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at groundcontrolparenting.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. The Ground Control Parenting with Carol Sutton Lewis podcast is a part of the Seneca Women Podcast Network in partnership with iHeartMedia. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening.